Welcome to At the Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. And uh, this is a podcast about policy and pop culture and what happens when the two of them intersect. Yeah. And so if you're listening to us and you're like, wow, they sound like NPR, there's a, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, we just got microphones. So we are officially big time now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we sound so different. Yeah. You probably won't recognize us. Yeah. It's, I mean, treat us like we're anybody, but we are now very big time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, today we're going to be talking about March Madness, everybody's favorite topic. Yeah. And specifically about student athletes and where they fall in all of the money that's being made with, through, for March Madness. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this one. March Madness is, in my opinion, the best sporting event of the entire year. I think it's the highest quality sporting event. It's the most entertaining. Um, And so I'm excited to, like, dig in and crush it. And And by crush it, I mean, like, really just ruin March Madness. (laughs) For everybody. (laughs) Whereas I do not watch college sports at all, so I will be learning a lot and sort of giving my opinions as... Somebody who participates in a bracket every year and won $62 off a bracket two years ago, and I'm still proud of myself for that one. Um, But yeah, so I'll be learning a lot, and I'm excited. All right, so let's get started. Um, for those of you who are less familiar with March Madness, um, a quick like 10 second recap. Sure. So March Madness is the name for the uh, tournament for the NCAA tournament every March. Hence What's the name. NCAA stand for? NCAA is the National Collegiate Athletic Association. I actually don't know. So that was just. I'm like... not sure, but it seems <laughs> like that makes sense. So I'm going to stick with that. Um, so at the end of the year, it's a 64-team tournament. It's actually been expanded to 68 teams. Um, and it's a round-robin type of style, single elimination. Um, and teams play. They travel across the you know sites, uh, different sites by for um, hosting because it brings a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the tournament in April, in April, there's a national championship who's crowned. It's a little bit different than any other national championship in collegiate level. Because, so, for example, um, in college football, there's it's a, now there is a tournament which is brand new, um, but it's only um, it's limited to four teams. And so um, this is a very unique tournament and where. Um, a wide variety of teams who are D1 schools, Division I schools, get to participate. And so you see schools who never otherwise would have played each other, um, schools who probably don't even know who certain other schools are. Um, <laughs> and it's just this really, really cool situation. And the, the most, you know, the thing that's really, that makes it special is that anybody can win. So this yeah. year, for the first time ever, a 16 seed beat the number one seed, Virginia, was beaten by um, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Mm-hmm. And so that's the type of excitement, I think, that really attracts people to this tournament. And a 16 seed would be a school that's ranked pretty low. Like, their chances of winning are ranked pretty low. They're the and, lowest of all the schools. Right. And the number one seed is somebody who's ranked... I mean, a lot of people had them winning the yeah, entire Yeah, Virginia was the number one team in the nation at the time. Yeah. And, um, and UMBC only got in because they won their conference. They had an automatic bid. So otherwise, they wouldn't. Have, nobody knew who they were. Yeah, so there's a lot of opportunity for Cinderella stories, for giant yeah. upsets. Um, so yeah, it is actually very exciting. Um, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of money that goes into this uh, tournament, and the NCAA collects $1.1 billion per year for CBS and Turner for broadcast rights to the tournament. Um, ESPN pays $470 million for the college football playoff, and so that's just a comparison point. Um, and then conferences and individual colleges make additional millions during the regular season. And so there's just money flying all over the place. Coaches get paid. Um, schools get paid. Everybody's getting paid except for the students. Right. Um, and so that's kind of what the focus of today's um, conversation is about, um, kind of the issue of students not getting paid um, and the, the different rules that surround money in college sports. Um, so... You might have, or you probably have heard the question before about whether or not students should get paid. Um, and the general argument is that, well, you know, college athletics is an amateur endeavor, um, and so um, they're playing for the love of the game. Um, <laughs> and also, they're already being, you know, they're being compensated in in scholarship. They're going to college for free, presumably. Um, although not every player 
on a team, especially for um, larger sports like football, are actually scholarship students. But that's another podcast. That we're not <laughs> um, but yeah, we should we should just say there are a lot of assumptions about student athletes. One of them being that they're all on free rides, and right. that's absolutely not the case. I mean, like less than five percent of student athletes are actually on full academic scholarships and academic scholarships typically just cover tuition they don't always cover room and board and other living expenses and so they're not just getting handed you know all of this money that covers all of their needs right Right. which is the issue um so we're gonna this conversation is kind of focused on what's called the power five those are the top five largest conferences um in college sports so there's five leagues, and those um, while there are over a thousand schools that are NCAA members, um, and hundreds of schools that are Division One, um, the schools in those five conference conferences win a majority of the um, you know championships, um, reign in the most amount of money, provide the largest amount of scholarship money. Um, so those are the, those are the schools that we're kind of talking about today. Um, so again, you know, there's Mary and I talked about how. Um, how much money this generates. Um, just you know, as another point of comparison, Ohio State's um, athletic budget last year was something about it was like one hundred twenty-one million dollars, just dedicated towards athletics. Um, so there's a couple of different issues with money in college sports and how it's impacting students. Um, most recently, um, you've probably heard of a lot there's been a lot of news about um coaches um kind of bribing or using agents to bribe high school students and their families to go into certain schools um and so the fbi actually has been investigating this um and people have been charged um and so you know what the charges are are things like quote potentially um, impermissible benefits and potential and preferential treatment for players and their families that can include um, giving a family a million bucks, which doesn't happen. It also <laughs> include taking a family out to eat. Oh, okay. um, and depending on who pays for the check, you know, people can get in trouble. Gotcha. Um, so those types of things are um, are considered bribery or just against um, NCAA rules. Um, I think the kind of the biggest, most recent example um, of what is against NCAA rules and which puts uh, students and students' rights at the center is what's happened at at UNC Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. Um, So UNC, they were national champions last year. Mm -hmm. And Coach Roy got almost a million-dollar bonus because they were national national champions. So that's, I mean, that's just a little bit of the money that's sort of flowing towards the school in this area. Right, and he's a, I mean, and this is a public school. Right. Um, to, so keep that in mind also. So kind of the, the Chapel Hill um, situation um, slash scandal is what it's been called, really began in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and it began, it's, a, ooh, it's, it's such, there's, so there's a book called Cheated, um, which we'll link to. And it is kind of like a, uh, it's like a burn book, read all. It is messy. And people are just telling everybody's business. And <laughs> I it's, love it's burn really books. <laughs> good. Um, but the story itself is actually pretty infuriating. Um, so, what, so really, kind of where this started was in the mid '90s when um, Professor Julius um, Yangaro took over as chair of the African and Afro American Studies program. Um, so before then, the program had been around um, for a little while and was really the result of black students on campus advocating for these programs. Um, but the school really dis, you know, it disinvested in the program. It was underfunded. Um, they didn't do a good job recruiting um, high quality. Well, they didn't do a good job of recruiting professors, period. Right. Um, and so there was really a professor, professor shortage. Um, and what happened in the 90s was um, Ngaro was placed as chair um, kind of not because he was the person who was best qualified for the job or had the best experience, but because he was like the only black professor in that program at the time. <laughs> um, and so he personally had an affinity for student athletes um, and him with the help of um, a couple of other tutors and other um, a- uh, academic advisors really turned the um, African and Afro-American studies program into um, really like a shell for student athletes to go and to get credits 
um, and to really not have to keep them eligible, Mm -hmm. to keep their GPA eligible, but not have to do the work. Um, And so over the course of, you know, a decade, um, there were something like 200 independent study courses. There were freshmen who were taking um, freshmen who were taking 400 level courses before they even started their freshman year, <laughs> which just doesn't happen. Um, and so there were also issues with people um, not even showing up for class, for there being lecture classes with no lecturer, mm-hmm. um, and it was just this continuous thing. Additionally, um, a majority of the department. Oh, not a majority, but a disproportionate number of the students in the department were non-majors who were also student athletes. Gotcha. Um, and so there's this just long, um, this long history in that department of kind of just academic abuse. What really makes it infuriating um, is the fact that it was a it was a program that was fought for. Right. Um, and so there was this idea that well, nobody's looking at the African and Afro American Studies program, so just go do your craft in that department. You wouldn't see this with the English department. You wouldn't see this with the history department. You wouldn't see this with the mathematics department. Um, That sort of speaks to like the institutional trend of devaluing African-American communities in general. And the fact that, you know, this wasn't, like you said, a department that was fought for, but it was one that wasn't taken seriously by the actual school. And so it was able to be turned into this front for, I mean, for the sports program. Right. Um, so one of the one of my favorite quotes out of this whole thing was from Mary Wilmington, who was co-author of the book Cheated. She said the athletic scholarship is just a lottery ticket with room and board and few and a few concussions. Or if you like the Willy Wonka, um, it's a golden ticket to win a tour here at a factory where, by the way, you might get injured or damaged, and there's no insurance, no workers' comp, and no salary for your labor. Um, and so, and I think the scandal, the investigation starts in 2014. By 2017, the NCAA announced that it's not going to levy any penalties because it couldn't conclude, quote, that the University of North Carolina violated um, NCAA academic rules. Because in their defense, <laughs> North, UNC said that uh, there are cases where Auburn and Michigan had similar misconduct and the NCAA didn't do anything. So that's always <laughs> a valid defense of like, well, they did it and nothing happened. So right. I don't understand why I can't do it either. Right. And that's, um, yeah. unfortunately, it is a valid defense. And it also speaks to a deeper problem with the NCAA that they do, they don't mind looking the other way when this is happening. Right. Um, I think what's the other thing about behind that is that um, there were the players, there were players who did get punished. Mm-hmm. So um, Marvin Austin, Greg Little, Robert Quinn, all from the um, the football program, were suspended from the team, expelled from the team, and banned from the NCAA. So they couldn't go play at another school. Um, but there's other cases. So like Reggie Bush was punished, um, I think, for something like selling autographs when he was in college. And he was punished. I mean, this was he was he was investigated and punished after he had left college college sports. Right. Um, A.J. Green, a receiver at Ohio State, and Terrell Pryor, a uh, quarterback who won a national championship, um, were suspended for they were selling their own. They were selling jerseys that they wore, and they were suspended for that. Um, and so, you know, we'll talk a little bit later. I think about um, some of the court cases that resulted from some of these things, um, but just like kind of more broadly. Um, I think there's push from both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a bipartisan. Uh, there's a bipartisan effort to not pay students, um, <laughs> which is great. And so on the on the left, um, there's this idea, this you know, the value of academia, and that um, students should you know, getting an, an education is there's a lot of value in that enough. Um, and there's this kind of knee jerk reaction against capitalism and the potential capitalism that could come from paying students. Um, And so there's this idea um, slash hope that college sports is more, more pure than, um, than kind of the free market. And then on the, on the right, there's this idea that, um, you know, these players who are, you know, coming from urban backgrounds, Uh (laughs) coded language. um, That's very good code. They're urban, you know, they they don't know how to handle money. No, that's fair. Um, and so they should just be lucky to get what they get. Right. You know, they should be thankful that we pay that we pay their tuition in order for them to kick a ball to right. go to some other some school that they otherwise 
had would have no chance to to get into anyway, or no interest in um, going to. But we'll right. we'll leave that. And then there's also this kind of paternalist. There is a very real, and I think this is actually across political spectrum. But there's this polit- paternalistic idea that we have with sports, where the coach is the father mm-hmm. and the kids are the players. Right. Um, but that doesn't work when the coaches are getting paid millions of dollars. Right. Like million. Like they're multimillionaires, and this is a person like. I harp on this a lot just because I went to Duke for grad school and there's a whole, there's a really strong association with Duke being like, you know, super wealthy and Coach K being like this demonic millionaire who just buys all of his victories. Leaving us, like, that leaves out the fact that Roy Williams is also a multimillionaire. Like, the two of them, like, it's a difference of degree, not like one is a millionaire and one is not. Like, all of these coaches are making bags and bags of money and the students, I mean, they're just really not making anything. No. And they're just like, I mean, these are schools, these are coaches these are entire industries that are profiting off of the labor of these young students nick saban um coach for alabama mm, his latest contract is for 11.1 million dollars and <laughs> the boosters um who we'll probably talk about a little bit later the yeah. boosters are the people who like just private alumni or whatever who just dump money into the program that's what that means okay yeah they paid off his three million dollar mortgage for what you know? Because he wins national championships. I don't want to go off on a rant, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is just so much money, and the idea that it would somehow cheapen the game. I mean, like that was the the NCAA's defense in a case that we'll talk about later. Uh, basically, to not pay um, players if their likeness is used in a video game. Um, their defense was, well, the reason that people want to watch the NCAA is because these are amateurs, these aren't professionals, and that paying them would ruin that, and they wouldn't have the choice to watch amateurs anymore. And like. There's money all over the place. Like they're not. First of all, they're not watching amateurs, and second of all, like there's already money in it. There's money enough to go around for for all of these students. So it's a nonsense argument. No rant on. I, I'm gonna stop now because I've got more to rant later. But <laughs> let me conserve my energy. Gonna take it back a little bit. <laughs> so unlike you. To 1890 to be exact. <laughs> so um, this may be a weird. This seemed and actually for me this was a surprising place um, for um, there to be some cohesion in this conversation. Um, but I really think the 19 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act um, is kind of like a linchpin for a lot of the conversations conversations around. Um, the NCAA, um, really sports in general, but very specifically to this idea of amateurism and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you like, we'll just get real wonky for just a real quick second. <laughs> so um, the Sherman Antitrust Act, as many people know, um, if you remember from history class, sure. is an, it's an anti-monopoly um, bill. So, you know, this was around the time where we had, you know, oil oil barons and coal barons and barons of all sort. And <laughs> they were just, you know, robber um, barons. Robber barons. They were they really, I mean, they were messing up this whole thing of capitalism by um, hoarding. Not okay. They were the purest embodiment right. of capitalism. They were messing it up so much it wasn't it <laughs> as much as possible. You're right. And um and so Congress passed this huge piece of legislation um, that was really, you know, I think it's worth noting that, like, this was an unpopular thing to do um, because it was up against special interests. Um, so FYI, there is, it is possible for Congress to pass um, legislation that is anti-special interests. <laughs> um, calling back to last episode's NRA. Anyway. But anyway. Um so the Sherman Antitrust Act was intended to prevent the creation of monopolies um, and to prevent um, industries from from really constricting um, free trade, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there's two parts to the there's three parts to the anti to the Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, the first part um, says, "quote Every contract, combination in the form of a trust um, or otherwise, or conspiracy." In restraint of trade or commerce, that part is important, in restraint of trade or commerce, um, is declared illegal. Um, So essentially, you can't do anything that prevents people from um, trading or from doing commerce. 
So in respects to the NCAA, you can't do anything that would prevent individual play or individual players from being able to um, do commerce with their talent mm-hmm. or their product, which is their mm-hmm. ability to play basketball. Right. The second part um, says that every person person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize um, or combine or conspire, which I think is interesting, the conspire part, and I'll I have an idea on that a little <laughs> bit later. Um, Blotty, 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 it's a felony. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Section three just makes it, it makes it apply to uh, to DC and territories. Gotcha. Um, and then there's also some amendments that come later in years that um, that strengthen this piece of legislation. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about like kind of the legislative, I guess, uh, backbone mm-hmm. that a lot of the arguments um, for paying players is going to be based off of. Right, and so that actually brings us to a little bit closer in time. Um, O'Bannon versus NCAA, and this is when the former UCLA basketball player Ed O'Bannon uh, joined a suit, a lawsuit against the NCAA um, on behalf of Division One football and men's basketball players, um, basically challenging for the right to profit off of their own likeness or image being used in specifically in a video game in Ed O'Bannon's case, like he was playing, like he was playing a video game with his friends and recognized himself. He was like, that's my bald head. That's my height. That's my weight. That's my Jersey. And that's my left hand. Like that's, that's definitely me. He had no idea and he wasn't getting any money from it. And so this, um, this sort of prompted him to actually say yes to the uh, lawyers who had been trying to get him to join their suit. And so the argument was that antitrust law each school should be able to decide if it wants to play its players or not. And players should be able to choose schools that offer them better deals, more money, more benefits. Um, and that they should, again, be able to profit from their likeness, image, anything like that being used for promotional or, or any sort of profit gain. Um, like I said a little bit earlier, the NCAA's argument was that, um, first of all, these are amateurs, and so they shouldn't be paid. And second of all, that it would... Um, Antitrust only counts if the consumers are hurt by um, by whatever agreement is struck. And so since the consumers weren't hurt by the fact that students aren't getting paid, then there's really no, there's no suit here. And um, yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, the, um, they first, <laughs> this case sort of went through a bunch of different courts um, in 2014 they uh, won their case in district court, and then it was appealed at the uh, at the circuit court of appeals. And so, part of the case was upheld, and part of it was reversed. And specifically, um, what was reversed was the idea that um, students should be paid at all. And so, that sort of brings us to today, where we still have people who are advocating for students to have the right to get any sort of profit from you know their skills and their likeness, and. Um, yeah, the NCAA is really just, like, holding its ground against this idea. Yeah, and can I also say, you know, that case had real-world implications beyond the players. Like, I used to play that game, <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, it they discontinued it. Yep. And I was like, what happened? It was, it was like, it was really so my, it was my favorite were game. Hurt. Yeah, consumers were hurt, so let's take that back to... to no, but um, I didn't know, actually, until today, like, why they discontinued that game. But, I mean, it completely makes sense. Um, yeah, and so they upheld the part um, that... Um, schools and um, that college athletes, their names and image and stuff like they can't be used um, without their without their own profiting from it, and so that's why your game got discontinued. And I yeah. apologize. Yeah, that's. I mean, the whole thing sucks. Yeah, but, uh, but especially for you. I know that's terrible. Struggle. <laughs> um, and so part of the reason that the NCAA is able to hold so strong against the idea of paying student athletes is that it's not actually a super popular idea nationally. The majority of Americans don't think that student-athletes should be paid for their work. That's shocking to me. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that like in a facetious way. That, <laughs> that really is shocking to me. I feel like it's something where, like, why wouldn't you? So I, it, it, that, I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I think, I mean, you are probably not surprised to know that it breaks down a little bit along racial lines. No, um, <laughs> so um, the people who... This is really interesting. There's a professor at UMass Amherst who was looking at just sort of like polls about whether student athletes should be paid and thought that it looked a little a little strange that it would break down along racial lines. And so he um, set up an experiment to see 
um, why exactly this was. And it turned out that people who had higher propensity for, what was it, anti-black sentiment, racial resentment, People who had a higher propensity for racial resentment. <laughs> well, we call that racist. Yeah, so people who are more likely to be racists um, feel that student athletes should not be paid, and that is most likely because they are envisioning black students who are um, who are sort of in this debate, and so they're thinking these students are lucky to be here. Like Brian was, you know, sort of referencing earlier, they're lucky to be here. They, you know, don't need to get any more than they already have gotten from the school. The idea that they're, you know, like taking all of this money through free tuition and all this stuff. So they should just be grateful and get what they get. Um, so yeah, black Americans are more likely to think that student athletes should be paid for their work. Um, I think that's probably because we have a history of not being paid for our work yeah. and we want that to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's just sort of my assumption. And then older older Americans are also less likely to think that student athletes should be paid. And that's not a surprise at all because right. these are like you see the same sorts of arguments as you see against raising the minimum wage or against paid internships that, you know, this is part of the game. This is, you know, how you pay your dues and you'll, you know, it just sounds like whining basically to older right. older Americans, which is, yeah, it's frustrating, but it is not... I'm not surprised by it. Yeah. Um, no, it's disappointing. I mean, I think the other thing behind that is, so there's, it's a it's very cyclical, mm -hmm. thinking about um, people's perceptions, um, the way that the court decisions have kind of um, landed, mm -hmm. um, and then thinking about just how, um, <clears throat> not just public policy, but then also just like the policy of these of professional sports organizations are mm -hmm. structured um, is really reflective of, of national perception. So um, I took a look at um, eligibility for the professional leagues um, that are associated with professional sports leagues. And so what you end up finding are that um, the leagues that tend to be more heavily people of color, more people, more, um, more athletes who are black mm -hmm. have, um, have different, um, eligibility requirements than the other leagues. Interesting. So, for example, <laughs> in the NBA, look, we'll, we'll wait for, we'll talk about the NBA later. Okay. The NFL. In the NFL, um, you have to be three years removed from college, I mean, for, excuse me, from high school, um, or you have to graduate early um, from college. Interesting. Um, and so once you decide, once you decide to, to, to enter the NFL draft, you lose your eligibility. So you cannot you can no longer play um, in in college football. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so there's a couple of things. The NFL is a bit different because of how physical the sport is, mm -hmm. and most of, in most how cases, um, you don't want to be an 18 year old playing in the NFL. No. <laughs> um, but the, pro the the other issue there being that there's no equivalent um, um, development league. Right. So players have to go to college. They can't choose to go someplace else and to get paid. Um, unless it's, you know, I don't know what the Canadian Football League rules are, but like there's very limited options for players who want to make it into the NBA, into the NFL from high school. You have to go to college. Um, and so, you know, you don't have an option of opting out of this, um, this really parasitic type of system that is the NCAA in college football. That's Just a quick, I, like, do they actually play football in Canada? Yeah. They, yeah, they have a Canadian Football League. What? Yeah. Okay. I thought they, I honestly thought they just had hockey. No. I thought we were the only... Okay, go no, on. No. Yep. The more you know. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's the NFL. The NHL, the National Hockey League. Heard of it. Um, which, by the way, sorry, this is a very weird side note. Like, maybe in the 70s, I think a majority of NHL players were Canadian. Um, and actually today, it's something more like 30%. How did that happen? I don't know. What anyway. <laughs> anyway, it's weird. So, but the NHL... NHL players can be drafted in high school. As long as you turn 18 um, before the season starts, you can be drafted. Um, so you can actually be a 17-year-old who's graduated, a 17-year-old senior, and be drafted into the NHL. Wow. So once you're drafted, you can choose to play college if you want to, or mm -hmm. you can go straight into the NHL okay. and get paid straight out of high school. <laughs> I will note the NHL is also a very physical uh, hockey is a very physical sport. Like, yeah. That doesn't seem to be an issue there. Right. Um, I mean, how 
what percentage of NHL players are non-white? I'm so glad you asked. Seven <laughs> percent are non-white. That's actually higher. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure like all the black players are on like three teams. Yep. Um, so I know the Predators have like three black guys, Where maybe. Are the Predators? Um, Nashville. Okay. I think it's Nashville. Don't at me. You're right. I'm Don't fact check this. Pretty sure that's correct. <laughs> um, the NFL also is 68 percent black. Um, the MLB, the Major League Baseball, um, again, high school players are drafted. Um, those players can then choose to play in college. Um, they can be drafted at any point, really. Um, they also, you know, Major League Baseball also has a very um, well-established uh, farm league or developmental mm-hmm. league. Mm-hmm. I will note players don't get paid a ton of money, um, but they also do get paid. Um, and so it's a, the point is it's an option. Um, Major League Soccer, in case you were wondering. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the criteria are for eligibility and draft. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that Freddie Adu, um, Mm who was born in in Ghana, um, but grew up in the U.S., um, and plays for the U.S. national team, he was drafted and began playing at age 14. So you can play in Major League Soccer and not be, I don't know, why not? I mean, you can, but you can go professional in things like tennis at age 13 um, or gymnastics or whatever it is. So the NBA and the the WNBA. Mm -hmm. The WNBA, any guesses of how, you know, what you have to do to be be eligible? Um, I'm guessing you have to be three years removed from high school. You have to be, you have to be, you have to have graduated from college hey. or be 22 years old. There you go. So that's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> the idea that, I mean, that's, that's from what I researched, like that is the um, kind of furthest gap or the most the longest time to wait to become eligible to play in the league. But also, the argument could be that, you know, they're really actually holding like academia as something that's. Or like getting an education is something that's an actual goal. As that's to... assuming that it's not situations like UNC where they're right. not actually going to class right. and their degree is just paper. Right. Um, so, yeah, in one sense, it is good that like you have to have a, you don't have to have a degree. You have to be twenty two. Right. Um, so in one sense, it is you know, laudable that you have that they focus on academics. Um, but the question is, if you are a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Why do you have to go to college? Um, and is the money that you're generating for those schools um, worth that, right. worth a college degree? And if you look at schools like UConn or Tennessee or um, Stanford, whose women's programs are really um, well-established and who, I, I don't know the numbers, but who I assume bring a lot of money, um, I would question whether or not you know the players are actually getting a good deal out of it. That's a good point. Um, so the NBA. Um, the NBA is, I don't know if you've ever watched NBA basketball, 74% black. Um, I don't know if you noticed the players. In the <laughs> I've seen some players, yeah. And the NBA has kind of been, um, it's been a battle um, throughout its history about eligibility and who can play. So originally there was the NBA and the ABA, National Basketball Association and the American Basketball Association. They were rivals. Um, <laughs> Seems like a lot. It was. It's a long, <laughs> long history. Um, and so originally the NBA required players to um, be four years out of high school or graduated before they could become eligible. The ABA, however, allowed high school players to come in. Um, so that was a point of contention. The NBA was kind of more the more notable league. Yeah. Um, so in 1971, um, this guy named Howard um, actually came out of high school, went and played for the ABA um, and played there for a couple of years and then um, um, got signed with the Seattle Superhonic, Supersonics, which was an NBA team, mm-hmm. um, who are now, um, oh, shoot, where are they? I guess they're in Oklahoma City. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, point being, the NBA um, wouldn't allow him to sign his contract, and so he sued. Um, and so from there, they actually started allowing high school players um, to be drafted straight into the NBA. So that lasted for a long time, from about the mid-70s up until very recently, up until 2005. I'll note, some of the players who came directly into uh, the NBA, you'll recognize their names. Um, I don't know, you know. No, go on. You'll recognize I think I might. So Daryl Dawkins. Nope. No, okay. Um, Kevin Garnett. Yes. Kobe Bryant. Okay, yeah. Black Mamba. (laughs) Um, Maybe Jermaine O'Neal. Nope. Okay. 
Um, Tracy McGrady. Nope. He's from Durham. Okay. Okay. I'm anyway, T Mac. <laughs> anyway, um, I didn't grow up here. You know that. It doesn't matter. It seems Kwame like it does. Brown, who was a flop, he probably wouldn't. Anyway, he was um, a flop. He wow. was. It's Amari Stoudemire. Yes. A guy named um, LeBron James. No. You might read LeBron James. There we go. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then Dwight Howard. Okay. Those are some of the notable, like, straight from high school um, players. So after that, in 2005, um, the NBA Players Association signed a new congress CBA, mm-hmm. Collective Bargaining Agreement. There we go. Um, where they raised the, raised the age to either one year or one year removed from high school or 19 years old. Um and so that created this one-and-done environment where players go to a, a college, play one year, and they already know from the time that they get there that they're going to play one year in a league for the NBA. Yeah. Um, but a lot of those players have been um, like criticized and, and, and all that type of stuff for doing that. But it's like, what are, what are their options? Right. I mean, when they're incentivized, like, there's such strong incentives to just, you know, to do the one-and-done, to go straight right. into the... NBA because again they would actually get paid for their labor right. and there are no incentives. I mean there are some schools that do have very strong like academic you know like incentives and stuff like that but for the most part there's no I mean students are not treated that well on campus by their peers by their professors there's just an assumption like oh you're just here to play ball so I don't even need to pay attention to you so like right. and, and if your option is to go to the NBA where you're actually getting paid for your work and you know like lauded for what you do and nobody told, like, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> or Steve Jobs, hey, guys, you know, I know you got a good idea, but you really need to finish college, and we're not going to fund you until after you finish college. Right. And that's because those guys don't look like the same guys who are trying to go straight to the NBA from right. high school, in my opinion. At the same time, like, it does frustrate me because, I don't know, I guess I want these students to get more. Like, I want them to actually get yeah. the student experience, no, yeah, sure. and I don't yeah. want them to just, like, have their bodies be used by these schools and then just sort of like Absolutely. sent away. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, and then like, I think the NBA is just this weird kind of mix of all of it because it is such a heavily um, black league. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done stuff in the past to kind of, they've really fought against like black culture. And it's like when the, the way that they treated Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. um, they just really I mean, villainized, villain, they villainized Allen Iverson yeah, because he was, for being right, he was seen as, because he had cornrows, um, cornrows yeah. and, you know, he didn't want to come to press conferences in a suit. Um, <laughs> and he would yeah, yell at reporters. <laughs> and, um, and like, I had a huge crush on Allen Iverson. I mean, he was the man. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, so like, I mean, the NBA created, you know, they created a rule about on off-court wear, um, at, at, you know, in reaction to, to Allen Iverson. And so, you know, in 2005, David Stern, who was then the um, commissioner, said that the rules were business-related and not, quote-unquote, a social program, um, which was, you know, BS. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I think just sort of our general attitudes about student athletes and athletes in general are very, I mean, like they're so steeped in race in this country and the way that, you know, thinking that student athletes are lucky to be there and so they shouldn't expect money is very similar to, I mean, as soon as you think, as soon as white Americans think the majority of the recipients of something are going to be black, they will not like it. So the idea that student athletes who are black might get paid, they don't like that idea. The idea that poor black folk might get welfare. They don't like welfare anymore. Um, And there's also this sort of recurring, you're lucky to be here, so just shut up thing that you see in athletes, you know, like professional athletes. Like you see that with Colin Kaepernick and you see Mm -hmm. that with LeBron James. And as soon as they make any political statements, they're told to, what is it, shut up and dribble is what that woman said to LeBron. And the fact that Colin Kaepernick is now unemployed because of his political statement about police brutality against black people in this country. I mean, there's just this assumption that we are lucky to be here, like in this country or in this profession. And, you know, because of that, we should just be quiet. And the basic idea is that we are not fully American. We are not fully human. Like we don't deserve to be the places that we are. So we should just stop calling attention to ourselves or stop trying to get more because we're blessed to be there. Right. And yet you've got people like Kurt Schillings, who is like, you know, 
employed by Fox News, right. who goes on and just gives his racist rants. And it's like, this dude was a pitcher. <laughs> like, who, who, you know, so the same network that will employ a retired pitcher right. to give his political, his racist opinions, yeah, not. will condemn someone like LeBron James, who's much more well-informed. And has much more insightful commentary. To right. say, you know, and he's actually like trying to uplift communities as right. opposed to just sort of denigrate them and blame them for every bad thing that happens. Right, right. But again, let me not go off on a rant. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do quickly want to talk. I mean, I don't have, again, like this is not my area of expertise at all, but there's a huge disparity between how we talk about female athletes and male athletes. And even the discussion about whether we should pay student athletes, like Title IX actually gets thrown out as a reason that we shouldn't pay athletes because we would have to pay, um, we would have to pay female athletes at least, a you know, like comparable amount and a, not all programs could afford to pay any of their students anyway. And so there's that problem, but B there's this idea that, um, play, paying female athletes would, paying female athletes would, um, just sort of make all of these schools go bankrupt because, you know, you have smaller programs, you have um, programs that don't get as much attention nationally, and so they don't have enough money. And so actually paying women what they want is going to be the tipping point, and that's going to be what sort of drags them under. And I think this is really well, um, the disparity between female and male athletes, at least in basketball, is really well discussed in the movie Love and Basketball, where you see um, both of the main characters go to USC for basketball, um, and they're both really amped about it. And you see uh, Quincy, who's the male protagonist, whenever he's playing a USC game, like it is, you know, packed, giant stadium, you know, like everybody's cheering for him. He's getting all this attention. He's getting courted by the NBA, all of this stuff. Like he gets drafted. Whereas um, Monica, the female protagonist, like she doesn't get drafted. She doesn't do a press conference like Quincy does to announce where she's going. Um, she has to, like, she has to earn her place on the team. And then when you see her playing, it's, like, basically the size of a high school um, basketball court. And there are, like, maybe 50 people in the stands cheering. And, I mean, it's also a really good movie just to talk about, like, how women are taught to express themselves on the court. Um, she keeps on getting dinged for, you know, like, being too aggressive or for celebrating too much, whereas Quincy, like, his, um, you know, bravado on court is really sort of like encouraged and people just love seeing this this man you know sort of enjoy his success and enjoy his um athleticism but yeah this is a really I mean I've never been to a WNBA game honestly like I've been to you know plenty of NBA games but there's a huge discrepancy and to see that female athletes are sort of used as this reason that no athlete should get paid is a huge frustration like it it doesn't make any sense and it's just it's a trash argument yeah even I mean even the advocates well, I'm not going to call them advocates. Even <laughs> people, the people who say things. <laughs> even the people who, like, consider themselves to be advocates um, will still, diff- like, highly differentiate. And I'm just talking about basketball because yeah. I think that's the one of the easiest comparisons. Like, we'll still differentiate and they'll say stuff like, well, women, you know, women's basketball is really fundamental um, and things like that. But, like, you've got Brittany Griner, like, dunking on people. Right. So, like, let's not, you know, let's not, let's not, uh, let's not you know, say that it's not the same quality of sport. Right. And let's just recognize that, you know, the differences that do exist are um, not the game itself, but because of all these other things that we um, that we place uh, on women and, and about the value that women provide to, to these to these these areas. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's just my little side note about, you know, just how how rarely women are talked about and how they're only ever negatively talked about in association with paying student athletes. Side side note, <laughs> and it's just an interesting. Like I don't, have, I haven't fleshed this thought out. But like, so Mia Hamm, right? Heard of her? Heard her? You know, she went to UNC. I do know that. Played soccer for. No, she still lives in the area. I did not know that. Yeah. Played soccer for Chapel Hill. Um, this is actually like, this is making me rabbit hole a little bit. But this this one is this. <laughs> so the um the USA women's soccer team mm-hmm. is dominant. Yes. I mean, they win a lot. Yes. They've won tons of um, national titles. They've won Olympic um, Olympic medals. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, their players make less than um, the men's soccer team, who men's soccer just team which... is trash. Yeah. Are they even going to the World Cup? I know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Who cares? Right. It's all... I mean, people... But seriously, though, I think that's... that's um, 
a lot of times you'll get the comparison. People will have judgments or thoughts about men's versus women's basketball. Mm-hmm. And so like, I just don't, you know, I just, it's just not the same to me or whatever like that. You know, that argument aside, when you look at these two teams where one team is clearly just much more successful than the other team, and yet there's these huge pay disparities, right. um, endorsement disparities between the two, um, it doesn't make sense. Even though, yeah, like you could not stop hearing about the women's national soccer team like a few years ago. Like they were always, I don't think anybody could name, I mean, like the average person couldn't name a U.S. men's soccer team player. Right. Like, we actually don't care about the men's national soccer team at all. <laughs> Except for but, Freddie, I do. Okay, sure. But him aside, like, yeah, the discrepancy is not actually based on, you know, public interest or anything like that. It's just based on really outdated ideas about what women bring to the table and what men bring. Right. Shout out to Hope Solo. Just like, you know, any issue mm-hmm. in society, <laughs> there are policy solutions. There, are, so there's a there's a multitude of solutions. There's yeah. some policy solutions, um, and there's also some kind of like what I'd call, I guess, administrative solutions, uh-huh. um, or private solutions or whatever. There's ways to solve this problem. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what some of those solutions are? Sure. I mean, my solution right now, because I'm in sort of a burn it all phase, is just to stop paying everybody. This whole thing, like this amount of money is ridiculous, and we could just stop doing it all together. But I don't know if I'd have the public behind me on that one. I mean, I would vote for like a socialization plan. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay, sure. That's like a halfway measure. We have to keep March Madness. It's, you know, and no, I, I think, I do think your point is like extremely valid. I think a lot of people, um, let me, I guess I'll go back. A lot of people don't care about paying athletes. Those of us who think that college athletes should get paid, um, but who also really do love college sports, um, think that there is a medium. And I think the, the, um, I think the tension there is, you know, it's just really exploitative, um, capitalistic system that's happening. Mm -hmm. And so either you fix the capitalist system, um, or you allow everybody equal opportunity to benefit from that capitalist system. Right. So the solutions that I had written down were, were not burn at all. We're not, we're of the latter. Um, so, I mean, a couple of, a couple of different options. Um, one is to allow players to bypass the, the NCAA. And so I think this specific this really speaks to the one and done, and it speaks to college you know college football. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to have college play or excuse me, high school players have to have a viable option um, outside of the NCAA where they can you know use their talents, play their sport, right. um, and be paid to, to be compensated to do so. Um, and you know not just a you can go overseas and play for a year, but like an actual valid um, you know developmental league or farm system that allows players to be competitive um, but to be compensated at the same time. I don't think, you know, the problem with that is that there's no policy to do that. That's all on the will of, you know, these individual individual leagues. Um, So I don't see that as something that's probably going to happen. I think something that's um, kind of a little bit more close to reality, and this came out of the Supreme Court case, or not the Supreme Court case, but the court case, that you mentioned earlier um, are full cost scholarships, right? And so those would be scholarships that pay not just tuition, room, and board, but also pay actual um, costs that students incur. Um, so those might, you know, it, it might be a five thousand dollars stipend mm-hmm. every year, something like that. There's also um, ideas uh, that kind of range around um, that include things like that, and and what they are are like escrow accounts or trust funds accounts. And so the idea that you pay college students um, and they can't access the funds um, Mm -hmm. until after they graduate or after they leave eligibility, I have some issues with that because college is expensive. Student athletes incur a lot of costs. um, And this idea that, you know, we know what to do with their money better than they do is ridiculous. I know I sound like a conservative on that one. (laughs) No, I mean, I think you sound like, I mean, if somebody doesn't have any money, if you give them money, they're going to pay for what they need. Like, right. that's that's kind of how it works. They're not going to – I mean, whether you approve of it or not, like you being sort of a nebulous, I'm assuming, like 50-something-year-old white dude in a suit, like whether you approve of it or not, like people are going to pay for what they need. And, yeah. 
a lot of these students really do need money. They need more than what the school is giving them. Yeah. Um, a couple of other quick ideas um, are really to focus in and pay players in the profit sports. Um, so those are that's football and basketball. Okay. Um, men's basketball. Men, right, right. Football and men's basketball. Um, there's a lot of issues with that that you know we're not going to get into, but that is an idea that people float around. Um, and then a couple of other ones, and this one's interesting because co- a lot of coaches have come up with this are stipends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know per game students get paid if you know. If you're in college football, you get paid $300 per game, and that's supposed to help you, you know, buy your parents' tickets, or um, or if you want to go out to dinner mm-hmm. after a game, things like that, which are minimal and absolutely not um, paying players what what type of revenue they're generating. Right. But it's a step. It's something. Um, and then the other thing, and I think that this might be. Um, maybe more in the realm of political feasibility, and this is a public policy option um, and a judicial option, mm-hmm. um, is allowing players to benefit, um, to get royalties from um, from their jersey sales. Yeah. So, you know, these schools are selling people's jersey numbers and they're not making any money off of right. it. Right, your name and numbers um, on something right. and you're not getting any. <laughs> um, being able to sell their autographs, mm-hmm. um, being able to get endorsements. I think that's again the the quite the a lot of the arguments around that are well, you know, a majority of players are not going to be able to benefit from this, and that's absolutely true. It's going to be the players who are like the best and the most well known. Right. Um, but just because it benefits some people doesn't mean that it's it shouldn't be implemented at all. Right. I think there are equity issues in there as well. Um, that's the problem with capitalism. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think I think your idea of like this whole system is wrong is a correct is is the right analysis and there's also the fact that like if we do i mean if we do give students more money like we are basically saying the way that you're treated by your school is fine because you're getting this amount of money so you no longer have any grievance like you no longer have any issue even though you're having to do like you're having to put in 40 hours of just like work aside from your school like even though you're being treated like, you know, basically not even part of the actual school by professors and by students, like, all of that is okay because you're getting this amount of money. Like, that's my fundamental problem with capitalism and with um, with the idea of paying students. Like, I want them to get what they're worth, but I also don't want to validate how they're being treated. I think, um, and this kind of goes to your point earlier, I mean, one, like, not even it's not even a new idea, like, is actually enforcing the NCAA rules that already exist right. and making sure that students are actually getting an education. Right. So if you're saying that, well, you're getting paid by this education, making sure that they're actually getting the education um, and that their practice schedule or whatever, that they're being treated like amateur athletes and right. not have, being forced to work 40 hours a week. Well, that's what, like, I was a TA when I was a grad student, and my, like, student athletes that were in my classes, they were always... I mean, they were some of the hardest working students that I had, and they also, like, were just getting slammed with their schedules, especially if, you know, like, I had one tennis student, one baseball student, and this was in the spring, so, like, their schedules were all out of control. And it was just, you know, like, we make them put up with so much, we make them do so much for these schools, and they are, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it, you know, another interesting idea came from Bamani Jones, who um, who's this really cool guy, he's um, an economist slash like sports commentator oh, wow. slash like troll defeater on Twitter. <laughs> um, one point he made was like, take a look at if you want to solve the problem, take a look at athletic departments. Mm-hmm. Um, these are non these schools are nonprofits um, largely, and so they have to get down to zero at the end of the year. And so if you have a, a athletics department that has you know a budget of one hundred and twenty million dollars, they're going to find places to put that money. Right. I mean, it can't go towards the students. So coaches are in a really good position to negotiate their salaries. Um, when boosters, again, these are wealthy alum, um, are paying money to the system, that, that money is going to the school, but it's going to be um, used for all sorts of other things. So, you know, building new facilities and, and things like that are paying for, um, you know, private jets or whatever it may be. So, the you know, if you can control the money that goes into college sports, um that starts to get a handle on it, especially right. if, you know, if there's an increase in money going in and none of it is going to the players, um, at least let's control the money that's going in. The last thing I'll say, I think, in terms of solutions um, is going back to this, you know, this Sherman antitrust <laughs> um, and this idea of collusion. 
Um, I think ultimately conspiracy conspiracy and oh, yes yes um, I think ultimately it's going to be um, the role of the courts or the role of Congress to decide and determine that um, what's happening is exploitative mm-hmm. and is um, is not in good faith um, and that these students are not being compensated mm-hmm. um, and there's going to have to be either an enforcement of existing policy um, or new federal policy that clarifies that this type of exploitative relationship is not okay. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of big pie in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a different administration. Mm, Yeah, maybe. I feel like after we've recovered from this one, it'll take like a full generation. We can start start doing that. So, um, Marion, what are you reading? Ah, so about this topic, um, I read a couple of really interesting articles. There's one um, on the undefeated, why are so many walk-ons white? And it's about sort of the discrepancy you see like with schools, like basketball teams that have really deep benches, basically most of those players who are just on the bench are white, but they're able to leverage um, the fact that they were on the bench and on this really great team into you know, like they're able to basically create a network for themselves so they can become more successful. And you're not seeing black students sort of being able to benefit from the same thing. So it's another interesting aspect uh, to the sort of racial dynamics that are at play with college basketball. Um, there's also a Harvard Law Review blog called The Crime of Paying College Basketball Stars Form Over Substance. And it basically goes through and takes apart the argument that, um, I mean, the argument that it's criminal to pay students for their labor. Um, and the last thing I'll recommend is not a book or an article. It is a movie that I mentioned earlier, Love and Basketball, which is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And it is, <sighs> I won't address your, <laughs> your controversial opinion on the movie, but it is a fantastic movie about um, gender roles. It is about just sort of like, it's a great coming of age movie. It's a great movie about um, basketball, I think, and falling in love and, father-son, mother-daughter relationship. Like, it's a great about basically everything that you could possibly care about. So, yeah, give it a watch. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good review. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10 would like recommend. You, sounds like you feel more than just, like, okay about it. It's like a medium. <laughs> <laughs> as far as movies go, it's fine. So a couple of things um, that I would suggest uh, reading. One is 40, $40 Million Slaves, The Rise and Fall and Redemption of the Black Athlete. Which is um, a physical book that which you is, have... That yeah. you brought in today. <laughs> By William Roden. Um, I haven't finished the book. Okay. The um, title is a bit um, hyperbolic, possibly, maybe. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but, I mean, the book is essentially about um, the exploitation of black athletes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm... I hope there's nothing crazy at the end of it so that I don't want to endorse a book that's terrible. We will take it off the first reading page if that, if still, that happens. Still working on that one. The next one is a book I mentioned earlier, which is Cheated, the UNC Scandal, The Education of Athletes um, and the Future of Big Time College Sports, um, which again is the book that I mentioned is like just this really juicy, like <laughs> tell-all type of situation. I'm really into it right now. Um, I really suggest reading that one. It's good. Um, the other, so two articles, um, one called, it's, uh, from the nation, it's called an economist explains why college athletes should be paid. And it's an interview with Andy Schwartz, who is an economist, um, who kind of gets the, um, the market argument for paying college athletes. Um, the last article is one called who's the highest paid athlete, um, public, excuse me, who's the highest paid public employee in every state, which is actually a bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, the data is a little bit outdated, but it's an interactive on ESPN that lets you see who is the highest paid public employee of each state. Um, spoiler alert, <laughs> 39 of the 50 states, the highest paid employees, either a college or a basketball coach. I'm guessing North Carolina is one of those 39. North Carolina is one of those 39s. Although I will say North Carolina, I mean, I think in 2016, the highest paid coach was um, at NC State, mm. who is no longer there. Um and his his salary pales in comparison to people like Nick Saban mm-hmm. or Jim Harbaugh or um, or a lot of these um, these college football coaches who are making ten plus million dollars a year. Um, the last thing I would say is follow Jamil Hill and Bamani Jones mm-hmm. on Twitter, um, and you can read a lot of what they write at the Undefeated. 
um, they have great, great insights, um, and they're they're brilliant people. Yeah, you can also follow us on Twitter. We are at at the podcast. Um, you can find us on uh, our website at dash the dash intersection dot com. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, um, SoundCloud, and all sorts of things. Yeah. Anchor. Mm-hmm. We are all over the place. And if you like what you hear, please do um, subscribe, um, rate, and give us a review. Because, please do. Yeah, that really helps us out. Yeah. This one was a lot of fun. Yeah. I learned a lot. I really don't... I didn't know anything about this going in, and now I feel like I'm a lot. There's always a way to connect anything with public policy. I think that's the lesson. <laughs> that's the lesson here. <laughs> so we always... Yeah, we always know a little bit of something. Yeah. Cool. So this has been At The Intersection. Um, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.